as, as I, I think through this series broadly, I think we talk in recent years, probably the last 20 years, gospel-centric, gospel-centered, you know, kind of the primacy of gospel talk is everywhere. Like you go to a Christian bookstore, you're going to see like, we need to be gospel-centered, we need to be gospel-driven. It's not wrong. I don't want to criticize. I think it's just probably um, better if we actually think of this as Christ-centered. Actually, the gospel helps us to see Christ clearly, what he is like, his affections, his values, his mission, uh, his ministry explains who he is. At the end of the day, though, we're not called to be conformed to the gospel. We're called to walk in the gospel and conform to Christ. In fact, I think if we're going to go long-term thought on like what the Christian life is actually doing, is you go back to the Garden of Eden and you see that Adam, made in the image of God, chose sin and somewhat defaced the image. And then throughout history, then, God's plan of redemption isn't merely just to rescue us from sin, but it's to recover that image and actually implant on it the, the character of Christ. You know, Adam was innocent. He wasn't actually Christ-like. He was just sinless. He wasn't actually righteous positively. And when he chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life, he actually chose sin, confirmed himself in sin. And I think since then, God's program is through redemption and the progress of sanctification, there's a battle to recover Christ's likeness. I think that's actually one of the purposes of the gospel. So as we think through like what the New Testament teaches us, I actually think there's a compelling call to be like Christ. And so I, I, I think it's, there's gospel dynamic to that, right? Because as you look at the gospel, it's an exegesis of Christ's character. And, and I think that's, that's helpful then, because as we go through the series, we're actually going to look at the gospel at times and look at Christ objectively at other times, and it's all accomplishing that same purpose, that we would see each one of us formed to be like Christ. So as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we'll get there in a moment. Let's start with prayer, and then we'll spend, oh, I don't know, about the next 20 minutes looking at Ephesians 4, and then want to spend a good uh, 20 or 30 minutes in prayer together. Usually my lack of discipline as a speaker means we have less prayer time, but I'm going to really try to um, rein myself in and land the plane and not, and not kill our prayer time by spending too much time um, going through passages. I think we'll be really transparently clear to all of you that Christ is the center of church life. Let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the goodness and the grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. We are reminded so frequently in the um, meanings of our songs, the words declare that Christ is the center of our hope, and because we have Christ, we have every hope. He is our foundation. He is that solid rock that cannot be shaken. He is our fortress. He is our Savior. He is our rescuer, our redeemer. It is through him we have the adoption as sons. It is with him we share an inheritance that's incorruptible. It is by his mercies we are saved, and it is through him all of your promises are yes and amen. We thank you for Christ. We ask that you would strengthen our church family. For those who are struggling with sin and falling into the, the snares of the devil, in danger of being devoured by the roaring lion, we ask that you'd protect them, that you'd use this church uh, to pray and plead their cause, that you might have mercy on them and keep Satan and temptation and failure away. Lord, we pray for those in our church who are now, perhaps in success, being tempted towards pride, Lord, would you teach us all the desperate need of grace? And Lord, 
We ask that humility would be part of the fiber of this church and this church family. Uh, Not a false humility, but a sincere thirst and need for your grace. A recognition of who we are without your grace. A dependency upon it. A willingness to serve others above and beyond our own desires to be served. Lord, give this church a, a grace to be humble like we ought, like our Savior is. Help us to walk in gentleness and meekness like he did, that we might be like our Savior. Uh, We thank you so much for the clear words of Scripture that show us the character of our precious Savior, our King who establishes what a citizen should look like in his kingdom. We ask that you might conform us to his image for your glory and for your honor. Amen. All right. We're in Ephesians 4. Like I said, I, I want to spend a little bit of time here because I think it establishes kind of the, the importance for the church. I think a lot of us, when we come to Christianity, we tend to think individualistically. Like, I need to walk with the Lord. I need to be like Christ. I need to pursue Christ's likeness. Although that's not wrong, that's incomplete. And so I think it's helpful if we, we come to a passage as in Ephesians 4, we recognize that this is written not only to a church, but it's written about church life stuff. So that's us, right? Like, we're the church gathered. And so rather than thinking, God is talking to me, Mark, we should be thinking, God is talking to us, the gathered body. We call it Crossway here. But really, the name is unimportant. We're the gathered people of Christ. We're the church. So come with me into verse... um, I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm going to focus on verses 12 through 16 um, and just take um, a little bit of a thematic point out of uh, verse 11 or so. Uh, starting with verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility humility, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that you belong, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So you get a sense of unity there for the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He wants us to be one. And we come to verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. It's talking about his incarnation. He, he who descended is the one who also ascends far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the, oh, excuse me, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You look at that text, there are a lot of prepositions. So you kind of get lost in the, 
and the purpose statement and, and all those clauses. But, but I, I want to highlight Christ's place in this because I think if, if we're not careful, we, we are pulling apart the verses and seeing the ministry flow of the church. But I think the central theme of this text is actually Christ in the church. It's, it's what Christ is doing. For instance, when you look at verse 7, but grace was given us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is, Christ has given the church these gifts, and he names the gifts, and he doesn't name them as um, maybe something given to these servants, but he actually says the servants are the gifts. Verse 11, he gave apostles. That's the gift. So maybe you'd say it's a gift of apostleship, but he's looking at the church and he's saying the gift to the church is actually what? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers. And the reason um, the shepherds or pastors and teachers, they're, um, they're, they're united a little bit more closely in Greek so that the point is pastors are teachers. And teachers may or may not be pastors. So that, that pastor is actually a subset of teacher. So all pastors must be teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. Having said that, I want you to look with me in verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That statement speaks, I think, to the general mission of the church. Or maybe I should say the general mission for which Christ died to redeem the church, and that is that he might be all in all. If you were to go back, I think it's at the end of chapter 1 when he speaks to this issue, um, that verse 22 of chapter 1, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now there's this idea that, that Christ's purpose in establishing the work of redemption and rescuing the church is actually to establish sovereignty over all things. So they say, what is the mission of the church or what has Christ done and why is he doing it? I think we could say general and broad mission and ministry is this. Christ wants to establish his sovereignty. It's either that or establish his omnipresence, which is nonsense because he's already got that. It's talking about him establishing or filling all things. That is, he is exercising his sovereignty so that all things are bent to his will as king. Now let me just kind of parse that out a little bit more so we understand it better. For instance, our Father who art in heaven phrasing here, right? Thy will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. Does God get his will? <laughs> okay, so you've got to, again, you've got to kind of distinguish, maybe I could say two wills. You might say a secret will and his declared will. So God wants me not to ever sin, right? Like, he calls me to perfect holiness. Am I perfectly holy? So declared will, be holy for I am holy. Like the secret will or actually what is determined to happen includes things like my sinfulness. Okay, so you can understand there's two wills. He is speaking to the, to the declared will and he's saying, may those agents in this world do freely by submitting to the lordship of the Father in heaven like the angels in heaven do exactly what God wants. Okay, the prayer is not for God's secret will to be done. God's secret will is being done, right? Not one molecule in this universe is a rogue re rebel to God's will that way. But a lot of us sinned this last week and disobeyed God's expressed or decreed or, excuse me, declared will. So when we look at this, this is the same type of call 
that Christ's will would be done throughout the universe as the reason for which he did redemption. He descended to this earth, incarnated, died, and has rescued the church, given the church gifts that he might be all in all. If that's a general mission, then we might want to ask the question like, so what does that look like? That's where I think he then says, and he gave gifts to men. So here's the gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or shepherds, and teachers. Those are the gifts he gave to the church. Now notice why he gave them to the church, because I think there's two ministries. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. So as you look at the broad mission, Christ establishing his kingship over the whole of the universe. Then we get down to the church. How does the church engage in, in helping to pursue the mission of Christ? What does it look like for us? Let me read these really complex words. Building up the body of Christ. What are we supposed to be doing? Building it up. Strengthening. Growing the body of Christ. And I, I think if we're just looking at that honestly, we would recognize that building the body of Christ includes two at least elements going back to the previous verses. If we have evangelists, building up the body of Christ probably means something like expanding its numbers. Right? Like if we're going to build this church, we're not going to merely just try to make everyone more mature. I think that would be the second element of building up. It's that we actually want to see more mature people. Not just more in maturity, but more of them in maturity. So that evangelists are, are helping us recognize that we want a bigger group of people throughout the whole world coming under the kingship of Christ, acknowledging him as Lord and being saved and brought into the church. And we want them to be more mature. That is, we want them to grow up. Now, now it doesn't take a lot of recognition to understand that though we're the body of Christ, Christ owns us. I mean, I am under no, like, confusion here. I've always thought of my body as mine. <laughs> just, like, we don't even think about owning our own body, but we see here we are the body of Christ, and sometimes it just slips our minds that this is Christ's church. But we continue on. So we have the major mission. Now we have the ministry, building each other up, building the church up. That is both expansion and maturity. But then we have a second um, ministry. Going down to 13, right? So, so we are, the body is built up until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, so, so how do we know we're actually pursuing this ministry? What, what are we doing? We're attaining what? Unity in faith? Is that what it says? The unity of the faith and in the knowledge of whom? The Son of God. So, I mean, the same person, Christ. That should be the center of our attention, at least like in this series, but I think as a church, is he is the center of our unity, unity of the faith. So, it's talking about like doctrine, not our, our trust, which is a more subjective idea of faith, my faith versus doctrinal, the faith. And what? Unity, right? Like we have this, excuse me, unity of knowledge. So we have unity of faith and unity of knowledge of whom? Christ. So what should be one of the central things we learn of, talk about, and join together in? The faith and the knowledge of God's Son. That ministry 
is, is calling people to know of and join in learning of Christ. And in fact, go back with me to chapter 2. I want to show you what he's calling people to get out of this. Because it says the unity. So why unity in this? So in chapter 2, he's got Greeks and Gentiles in the church. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So a doctrine of Christ will lead the church to pursuing unity over and against prejudice, particularly in the Jew-Gentile distinctions. So when you come to chapter 4, he's like, you need to have unity of the faith you need to have the unity of the knowledge of the Son, and God, the Son of God. He is considering statements like this. If you know what Jesus did in the gospel, if you know what his death accomplishes, your division in the church disappears. Prejudice is, is vanquished in the cross. Why do you have prejudice in the church? Because you're not rightly understanding who Christ is and what he did and applying it. And so he's calling for the church in its ministry to pursue a unity of doctrine about the Son of God. But then he continues on. Look at the second part of 13. He says, To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here we have, we have ministry. We have kind of two components of ministry. We have equipping of the body excuse me, the, the building of the body, the edifying of the body. And then we have this growth in knowledge and faith in the Son of God. This is kind of content stuff, right? You with me? And now he moves and says, so here's how you know you've reached maturity. Or make it say the measure of success is Christ-likeness. Now look again at the wording there. He says, we... So when he talks about this maturity, he's not, about, not talking about Christ-likeness in you as an individual. He is talking about what? Verse 13, we all attain this. This is body talk. So when he says, I want this group of people, we all, to attain the measure of Christ's stature, he's calling for us to be a perfect reflection of Christ as a, yeah, as a, as a whole, as the body. The metaphor makes sense, right? So it's, it's kind of like you have this infantile church. It's, it's a little baby. It's, its immune system is weak. It's incapable of walking and talking. And as that child grows and develops and reaches full maturity, it might look like mom or dad. And it's got the same height, generally speaking, as mom and dad. And it gets to the place where it's able to be competent in life in terms of family life and reproduction and, and all those things. And so we would say maybe the measure of adulthood, we have some artificial standard like 18 or 21, but it's, it's like with my kids, I think like my third daughter is, is, she's not afraid, but she might be done growing. She hopes she's not. 
You know, so it's like all of a sudden she's, she reaches this measure where she's, like, at least in terms of height, done. She's mature. She's nowhere near mature in other ways. She's an eighth grader. She's the tallest girl in the home and very proud of it and hoping she gets taller. So here's, here's Paul's point. The church as a body, like a normal organic body, is to grow until it is a reflection of whom? Christ. Now think about how much Christ has been centered to his discussion so far. The, the broad mission that Christ is accomplishing through redemption is that he would be supremely king over all things. And then he focuses on the church. This work of redemption has brought about a right for that king to dispense gifts to accomplish his mission. So that the church, in its ministry, is built into Christ-likeness. So that its doctrine is strong in Christology. Right? Like, we're talking about the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son. And then, as that happens, as we learn of Christ, as we know of him, and we apply that knowledge, that leads the church to maturity so that the church corpus, the body, looks like Christ. So you can see why when I'm looking at this text, I'm going, man, as a church, we really need to understand Christ, don't we? How am I supposed to encourage anyone to look like Christ if I don't even understand him? How am I to be a pastor who leads the church as a body to be conformed to Christ if we don't know him? How are we supposed to challenge others in a lack of Christ-likeness when there's failures for me to even recognize when someone's not being like Christ? Well, if he is the measure of maturity, if he is the gold standard of what it means to be fully mature, then we need to all understand it and as much as is humanly possible, seek to master the doctrines of Christ so that Christ might master us. Look with me in verse uh, 21 of chapter 4. You'll see how this is, this, is, this is how he thinks. In fact, if we were to go back, he's concerned, verse 17, that you no longer walk as, as unbelievers, Gentiles do. Verse 20, speaking of the gospel coming to them, this is not the way you learned, what? Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him, I mean, almost like a rhetorical aside, like this is the gospel. This is not what you learned about Jesus Christ. If you've actually heard the true gospel of Christ, and continue on, look down in verse 24. We're to be renewed in our minds, verse 23, to put on our new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So who has shown us God? Is it not Jesus Christ who is the revelation of God? who has spoken as the most perfect, full, and final word, as Hebrews declares to us, that has revealed God to us. Or simply as Jesus basically says, right? You've seen the Son, and if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. So we, we, we have this ministry, the church is built. We have kind of this second element of ministry, this unity and doctrine, that we know the Son of God. Its measure is Christ-likeness. Lastly, it's manner of growth. 
Look down in verses 15 and 16. Uh, just, just to give you like full context, because we've kind of followed through the passage so far. Let me not skip 14. He says, as we mature in Christ-likeness, we are no longer children. So you see that contrast of maturity, where doctrines and, and um, I should say deviant doctrines, false doctrines, false teaching, mess us up. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. Just a, an aside here. This is not about like confrontational communication when you see a brother misstep. His point is really clearly doctrinal, <clears throat> right? Deceitful doctrines. So we're talking about someone in error on objective truth. What do we do with them? Unlike someone who's following deceitful error that's going to wreck them, we speak doctrinal truth because we love them. Okay, so, you know, yeah, there, was, there was a time I spoke to a man who had very thinning hair. And I said, you know, it might be time for you just to buzz that. I was thinking, man, I'm speaking the truth in love. That is not at all what this text is talking about. It really was. You know, sometimes, like, you're just, like, clinging to those last few hairs, and it's like, man, this is like, you've lost the battle. Let it go. Just, right, Colin? So, you look at, you look at a text like this, and, and sometimes we think, okay, this is me being challenged that I need to be someone who, when I give hard truth, I need to do it lovingly. Well, of course you do, but that's not the point. The point is here that we pursue doctrinal truth because we love the church. This is a challenge to passive pastors and church members when someone's toying with false doctrine and going to bad churches. This is how we should speak to loved ones who say they follow Christ but are not going to church at all. This is how we talk to people who are in jeopardy of their souls by, their, by following false Christ, false beliefs, and false doctrine. This is not about telling someone they need to go on a diet. I don't know, I hope that helps, but I feel like it gets misused in the church. So, having said that, this last kind of measure here, we speak the truth in love so the church grows up into its head, Christ. And Christ then is the one who causes the growth through the church by its various joints working together with each uh, part of the body working properly. So Christ is not only... The, the one who causes the growth, he's the goal of that growth, right? The church grows up into its head, Christ. And he is the one, in turn, through the various gifts in the church, causing the church to grow. That would be the, the way he's phrasing that. And then it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So look at that last line and think about then your responsibility to know Christ, to walk with Christ, to understand who he is and what he would do and how he would live life. How does the church grow? It builds what? So Christ makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And, and this might be something that's lost on our church and hopefully in, in good ways because I think a lot of you naturally do this. But the goal of the church is that the ministers of the church are the church. Is the church. It's, it's you all. 
as individuals. I'm sure many of you linguistically get that out any other way. You are called to be building yourself up, but it's not because it's of you. It's Christ, the head, who supplies this through you. So maybe you can think of it this way. God has granted you gifts and supplies you both the ministerial gifts, the content that should be the truth that you speak in love, and then calls you together, joins you together in a supernatural joining that he then endorses, encourages, and, and energizes so that you build one another up. So, so maybe like if you think in terms of vehicles, Christ is the one who gives the gas and gives the map so you do it the right way and go the right directions, but it's your engine. You're the thing doing the work as he supplies the power and the pattern of, of character that he has given to you. If that all is true, I think it's pastoral malpractice not to call you to come and look at Christ. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next handful of weeks, is I'm going to try to take various texts of Scripture and say, here is, let's, for instance, the forgiveness of Christ. I'm going to spend a few minutes looking at the forgiveness of Christ, laying out the doctrine of who Christ is and what he's done in forgiveness, and then suggesting to you, go and do likewise. Uh, we did this a little bit in Philippians, so I probably won't preach Philippians 2 again, although like we could preach that like on the first of every month and it wouldn't be enough. Philippians 2 is so good. And Christ is humble. We're to have a mind like Christ and be humble like him. And we could go, go through the New Testament and see various texts. That's our plan on Sunday nights, that we would consider Christ and his work, so that be the gospel elements, but also his character. I don't think God is calling us to omnipresence. He is not calling us to omniscience. He's calling us to the character of Christ and his morality, his patience, his gentleness, his humility, his forgiveness, his love, his faithfulness, his integrity or truthfulness. Even things like his, his intercessory prayers, his pursuit of the Father's glory by doing his work. It's those types of things that the New Testament takes and says, hey, here's Jesus. Here's what you should look like. So hopefully it'll be really encouraging. That's my goal in this passage is kind of, I think, tries to take the church and say, look to Christ. Consider him. Go and be like him. And help others join you. And so by God's grace, we'll do that as a church on Sunday nights over the next um, couple months.